lead you there. Uh, look at Philippians chapter 2. We're back in Philippians today. I had intended to preach the first 11 verses, but uh, I'm getting to be more like Chick. I, I'm not going to make it. He, you know, he just takes his time. And uh, I told him yesterday, I'm going to have to shave my head, just keep my mustache, and he and I can be twins. <laughs> Philippians 2, we'll look at the first five verses today. <clears throat> if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. <clears throat> First sermon I ever wrote, I don't say preached, didn't preach it, was on Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. I was a second-year Greek student, and one of our major assignments for the semester was to write a sermon based on the exegesis of some New Testament text. This is the one I chose. At the time, I didn't know that this passage, and we won't get to this yet today, but particularly verses 6 and 7, is an exegetical minefield. Scholars, both liberal and conservative, have contended for their interpretations of those verses ad nauseum. Of course, my Greek professor knew all those arguments perfectly well. I did not. I'm not sure what he thought of a second-year student who was either ignorant enough or arrogant enough to take on a passage like this. Actually, I do know what he thought. He gave me a C plus on that sermon. <laughs> and he was probably being kind. I, in that assignment, concentrated on verses 6 or 11, which most scholars believe to be a hymn to Christ that was chanted or sung in the earliest days of the church. I tackled the theological implications of the Greek text, and particularly its bearing on the nature of Christ. But while that hymn, you'll see it often set uh, apart in your, your Bible, while that hymn is a theological treasure house, Paul did not include it for that reason. He was aiming at ethical, not theological instruction. Paul wasn't hoping to get men and women and the Philippian church to reflect on the nature of the hypostatic union. He was encouraging them to follow the pattern Jesus had given them. And that's where we're going to focus today. Next week we'll get theological and enter that treasure house in verses 6 or 11, hopefully come back out with some truths that will help us live beautiful, extraordinary lives. Now, before we get to verse 1, we need to remember that chapter 2 flows out of the subject matter of chapter 1. As obvious as that seems, we often forget. In chapter 1, and of course, there were no chapter breaks in Paul's original letters. In fact, those weren't inserted into the biblical text for more than a millennium. In chapter 1, Paul was urging his Philippian friends to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That was verse 27. He knew that the successful defense of the gospel depended upon the conduct of Christ's people. 
He was still thinking about that theme when he wrote the words that open this chapter. Paul realized the gospel will not be advanced by a church that is divided. We who belong to the church of Jesus Christ not only deliver the message, we are, at least in a sense, the message. The message is written in our lives. It's amplified through our relationships. When our relationships contradict the content of the message, no one will understand it. My mother called me one night in October 1996. We were having a, a church um, Oktoberfest. We are out by the fire, and I think I came in and had a message from her. I called back, and my dad had been rushed to the hospital. Initially, we thought he'd suffered a stroke and then found out that the cancer that later killed him had metastasized to his brain. After a day or two, the steroids that he was given began to shrink the tumor, but until then, whenever he tried to speak, gibberish came out. Even when he tried to write, it was all gobbledygook. He would look at that, and it made perfect sense to him, but no one else could get what he was saying. Well, something like that happens when we tell people the gospel in the context of diseased relationships in the church. What we're saying makes sense to us, but it doesn't make sense to other people. Paul understood that the message is not merely conveyed by individuals, it's conveyed by individuals in relationships. And those relationships either amplify the power of the message or introduce so much static into it that no one will pay any attention. There's a great example of this from the earliest days of the faith. The Jerusalem church was growing at a phenomenal rate. People were hearing the good message of God's action in Christ and were responding by the thousands. Listen to what Paul's friend Luke wrote about it and don't miss what he has to say about the camaraderie and the unity of the church. You'll see it up on the screen here. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Churches are always anxious to ha have the Lord add to their number. In fact, they go to conferences, pastors go to conferences all over the country and the world so they can learn out how to have people added to their number. But God is reluctant to add people to a church where strife exists. God looks for unity in a church family. And then he adds people to it. Unity is crucial. And it's dependent, Paul's about to tell us, upon two things. Humility and self-denial. Look at verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Now, let's pause there for a moment. <clears throat> I've noticed that people tend to read this verse if it was just about me and Jesus. Our translation, the NIV that we're using, even reinforces that idea. The original simply says, if any encouragement in Christ. 
But we read it, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. So we're just me and Jesus. If any comfort of love, in the original, becomes if any comfort from his love. If any fellowship of spirit becomes if any fellowship with his spirit. See, Paul would agree that encouragement, comfort, fellowship, tenderness, compassion come from Jesus, but they normally come from him in the context of the church. They come through his people as they live with each other, love each other, put up with each other, work with each other. Now, some people don't want to hear that. They want it to be about just me and Jesus. They act as if and sometimes even say they don't need anybody else. But I've noticed that among people who display that attitude, encouragement, comfort, fellowship, tenderness, and compassion are usually in short supply. Try reading that first verse this way. If you don't have any encouragement in Christ, if you don't have any comfort of love, if you don't have any fellowship of spirit, if you don't have any tenderness and compassion, what do you think Paul would say to a professing Christ follower? Somebody says, I received Jesus into my heart when I was 14 years old, and, and I've known him ever since. What would he say to somebody who professed to follow him but lacked these things in verse 1? He would say something's wrong. There is encouragement in Christ. There is comforting love. When people are not experiencing these things, something is amiss. When church people are not experiencing these things, the gospel's advance is halted. If you're not experiencing these things, you need to see someone about it. That is not normal. Look at verse 2. Then make my joy complete. Fill, literally, fill my joy full. Fill it up. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now, we're going to get out our magnifying glass in a moment and look at this verse in detail. But before we do, let's step back and, and think about the whole situation. Here was the apostle sitting in prison as he writes this. His sentence was about to be handed down, and it might well mean his death. And he says, make my joy complete. Fill it up to the brim. I already have joy, but you can fill it full. Here is joy in the most unexpected place. And we have to ask ourselves, how? How is it that he had joy in such unfair, unpleasant, and seemingly unending circumstances? And could I have joy in his place? Paul was working from an equation that relies on a biblical axiom. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your heart goes with your treasure, your time, your money, and your energy. It goes where you invest your treasure. Paul had invested himself heavily in the Philippians, and he knew that when that investment matured, it would bring him great joy. Now, what are you investing in? It's a question worth asking yourself. Where are you investing your time and your energy and your money? In comforts, possessions, status symbols, your image, your house, your lawn. See, some people never have joy because they put their treasure in such hit and miss investments. But Paul 
looked to see, this is a great investment strategy, he looked to see where God had invested, and then he put his treasure there. He knew it was just a matter of time before his investment in the Philippians paid dividends. He was just waiting for notification that it had matured. He was expecting that notification in the form of a report that the Philippians were like-minded, having the same love, were one in spirit and purpose, and then he would know that his investment had paid off, and it would bring him great joy. Now, before we go on, notice that each of these expressions of Christian maturity, being like-minded, having the same love, one in spirit and purpose, is exhibited in community. Every one of them. See, the church is important. It's important to our spiritual formation as individuals. Individualistic approaches to the faith, to holiness, to spiritual maturity, are not only not biblical, they are not effective. They don't work. It's not just Jesus and me. Now, there's a major theme that appears in this verse. Remember, we saw clearly in chapter 1 the truth that how we think and what we think about is critical to our success in living an extraordinary life. Your mind matters. Well, we may not notice it in some translations, but in this chapter there is a strong emphasis, beginning in this verse, on the believer's thought life. The phrase translated being like-minded is literally the same thing thinking. The phrase one in purpose in the NIV translates more thought life terminology. One thing, think. When Paul tells us to be like-minded, this needs a little explanation. He is not saying that all Christians must come to the same conclusions on all issues. He's not saying we must think the same thing about theological issues like eschatology or social issues like abortion, however important those things may be. And I don't want to minimize them at all. They're very important. But genuine Christian thinking is not characterized by its conclusions, but by its character. It's concerned with Christ, his purpose and glory. It's framed by a concern for others. It refuses to use reason to advance personal interests. And that makes it very different from the thinking most people engage in. That's the character of almost everyone's thinking you meet all day long. But it should not be the character of the person whose mind is being formed by Christ. We'll see more about this as we go on. The unity, remember, it's crucial it's crucial to your spiritual formation. It's crucial to the advance of the gospel and the success of the church. The unity of verse 2, being one in spirit and purpose, is built upon the humility of verse 3 and the self-denial of verse 4. Verse 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Imagine some organization that you're associated with place you work, or your golf league, or some service organization. 
in which no one acted out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. The word, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? We're so used to this as a reality. The word translated as selfish ambition is elsewhere translated self-seeking. Its very character is divisive. It sets my interests against and above your interests. Its presence, this selfish ambition, makes the kind of thinking described in verse 2 strictly impossible. You just can't do it as long as this selfish ambition is present. Most people assume that everyone acts out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, that it's completely natural. And that may be, but if, it's, if that's so, what the church needs is completely supernatural. A different way is possible. The word that the NIV translates as vain conceit is from a compound word meaning empty glory. Seeking glory can be an addiction driven by the need to be recognized and valued. It's an addiction that has laid waste many a church, much the same way alcohol and meth addiction has laid waste many a family. That addiction must be broken. Jesus gave us a, a treatment program for glory addiction in the Sermon on the Mount. The ongoing practice of service and sacrifice performed regularly and in secret. Giving money without anyone knowing. Doing acts of kindness without telling others about it. Sacrificing time and even food without calling attention to it. Over time, these actions have a cumulative effect and can break the glory addiction. The glory addiction will destroy a church, especially when it's in the leadership. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or this vain conceit. Now again, imagine an organization you belong to where no one uses other people to get ahead. No one tries to outshine his or her colleagues. Can you imagine what it would be like? It's what we should be like. The church ought to stand out in bold relief when placed against every other organization of people in the world. That was always God's intention. And to the degree that's true, the church advances the gospel. When Paul writes, in humility consider others better than yourselves, he is using yet another thinking word. The word that the NIV translates humility and humility consider is a compound word from roots meaning lowly and thinking. The person who thinks this way, this is a way of thinking, does not work from the starting point that he's more important than someone else or that his needs have priority. In fact, he intentionally considers others better than himself. How on earth can anyone do that? It's not natural. No, it's supernatural. But God wants more than that. He is able and he intends to bring about that kind of humility in you.
What will that look like? The humble person is realistic about himself and others. He or she realizes that life will only work with the help of God and is constantly looking for that help. That humility will not require us to put other people down or put ourselves down. It may require us to lift other people up and will frequently do so. Let me give you three steps to humility. I once heard Dallas Willard share just as an aside. I found them helpful. Maybe you will too. First step to humility. Never pretend. Never pretend. Pretense is a major part of most people's lives. Ruthlessly eliminate it from yours. Refuse to pretend that you know things you don't know or can do things that you can't or have come up with things that are in reality just derived from other people. That will take training and practice, but never pretend. Second step, never presume. Never presume that you should be treated in a certain way. How much trouble this causes in every human organization and in the church. People should pay attention to me. I know more about this than they do. You would think they would have asked me to be on the committee. I should have been consulted. We do it without even thinking. It's ingrained in Adam's children. We must learn to recognize presumption in ourselves and stop it. We should even ask those close to us, our spouses, our friends, to point out such presumption when they see it. Just go for a drive somewhere and get on the highway and drive 20 miles and you'll see this presumption come out in you. It's a good place to stop it. Third step, never push. Never pretend, never presume, never push. Never push to have your own way or even God's. Stand for God and for what is right, but don't push. If you'll stand, God will do the pushing himself. All you have to do is stand. Don't go along with what's wrong. Humbly take your stand, but you can do that without pushing. Now, humility, that sounds as if humility is all what we don't do. That's not so. Humility is not simply passive, and here's where that self-denial that's so important to following Christ comes in. Paul says that each one, verse 4, should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We get our words scope from the Greek word that's used here, skapeo, to look carefully. We are to scope out the needs of others and assist them when and where we can. That will sometimes mean putting our own interests on hold while we concern ourselves with the needs of someone else. If you think, I don't want to do that. That doesn't sound like any fun. I have three things to say to you. First of all, if you make all of your life choices based on what sounds fun, you will not get on with Christ. I guarantee it. And more than that, in the long run, you won't have any fun. Second, it may not sound fun to you, but you won't know until you try. Most people find their lives are happier when they begin to look to the interests of others. On PBS, 
not exactly a bastion of Christian values, there was a show called This Emotional Life. And in that show, they reported that altruism, I quote, altruism in all its forms, kindness, generosity, compassion, volunteering, and donating money, has the potential to reward the giver as much or more than the recipient. The writers went on to say, volunteers see greater benefits than those they are serving. It may not sound fun, but you won't know until you try. The Love and Action Board out there is a way to try. Serving at BIHN is a way to try. Getting involved with the food pantry is a way to try. The Compassion Children is a way to try. Try it. And third, that reaction against looking to the needs of others does not come from the new nature, incipient in you when you receive Christ, but from the old, selfish, foolish nature that we all inherited from Adam. Letting that nature make your decisions for you is like asking Bernie Madoff to make your investments for you. You can do better than that. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. The word attitude, we should expect it by now, is yet another thinking word. They all even come from the same root. It's a verb, actually, in a command form, and it comes in this rather staccato sentence. Think, it's an imperative verb, a command, or be minded in yourself or among yourselves, which also is in Christ Jesus. Now, we'll get into that and what that means next week. I just want to point out once again that your mind matters. What you think about when you are alone, when you're with others, when people praise you, when people criticize you, when you're happy, when you're sad, will determine your success in following Christ. You must take control of your thoughts. That is possible, and God will help you. All right, let me give you the take home. Three things. First, you cannot ignore the church or divide from people in the church and stay in Jesus' good graces. He loves the church. If you're divided from some other person, whether through your own doing or that other person's, or is, is likely both, humble yourself, go to that person, and seek to repair the relationship. If you refuse to do so, your growth in grace will be dramatically hindered. Now, you may not be able to repair that relationship. That's certainly a possibility. But as far as it depends on you, that's St. Paul talking, live at peace with all men. Second, you cannot ignore your thoughts and still have peace and joy. If you do, your mind will be like a computer without antivirus software. One virus may not do too much harm. A pop-up now and then is just an annoyance, but over time your mind will be less and less effective in its role in spiritual formation. It has a very important role. It will crash in selfishness at just the wrong times. Thoughts will cause frustration and fear. Joy will disappear. You must install a firewall. Now we're going to talk more about this because this is a theme that goes through the book. But today I'm just suggesting a first step. Ask God to help you monitor your thoughts. 
You have to become aware of what you're thinking. Ask him to alert you to thoughts that are foreign to his character and to your new nature. If you ignore this, you do so at your own risk. Third, if some idea occurred to you as you listened today that you needed to write a wrong relationship, for example, or get involved in some kind of service to others, that idea may well have come from God himself. Think about it. The God of the universe may have just spoken to you. If it's a good thing, just do it. Don't ponder it, write it in a notebook, or tell others about it. Just do it. It may be hard, but God will help you. Don't reason it away. If you do that and keep doing it, the time will soon come when you don't hear God speak to you anymore. If you need help doing it, prayer, support, encouragement, accountability, ask for it. The elders, the deacons, your Christian friends will all be on your side as you try to do God's will. And more importantly, God himself will be on your side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Lord, you know we're not very courageous, and it takes courage to live this life. So I pray for your help. If you've put something on one of our hearts today, in our minds, I ask you'll give us help to go and do it. Not fuss about it. If we know it's what you want, not even pray about it. At least not as an excuse to put it off. But you know how weak we are. And we know a little bit about how strong you are. So lend us your strength so that we can serve you and be what you desire. In Christ's name, amen.